You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Well, good morning, dear friends. Uh, I know a lot of you. I'm John Yates. I'm so happy to be back with many of my Birmingham friends on Palm Sunday. I was thinking, um, I've, been, I've been friends with uh, your rectors uh, back to the early 80s at least, and uh, every one of them has had me out here at one time or another, so good to be back. Each of the four Gospels present us the story of Jesus' entry into the holy city just a week before his death, and each one of them includes some aspect of the story that's different to that particular account. And in St. Luke's Gospel, we read this detail. When Jesus drew near, he saw the city and he wept over it, saying, Would that even today you knew the things that make for peace, but they are hidden from your eyes. For the day shall come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and surround you and hem you in on every side and dash you to the ground, you and your children within your walls, and they will not leave one stone upon another because you did not know the time of God's coming to you. The Son of God wept over the holy city just as he was entering it. I just wonder how carefully we've thought about that. What does it mean that God's Son wept over the city? I'm pondering that question the last week or so, and I've been thinking about COVID-19 and how it's swept across the world. And I've imagined to myself a little, a little story, sort of a little parable that I'd like to share with you. Once upon a time, long ago, in a faraway land, there was a city in which, unbeknownst to her citizens, a rare and terrible disease, an Ebola-like disease, was spreading. And this disease had a lengthy and uh, undetectable incubation period, followed then by a short and terrible sickness and painful certain death. Well, hardly anybody in the city had manifested any sort of symptoms, and so they were all completely unaware of the danger of this devastating plague. There was, however, one young man who had left the city sometime earlier, a rare young man, and he had been born with a unique blood condition which made him amazingly completely immune to this disease. And uh, he and a brilliant friend had developed, had discovered this immunity, and they had developed a serum using his blood cells so that the people of his hometown could be immunized and the city could be saved. Are you with me so far? Okay. So he came back home and he announced to his friends his purpose to help avert disaster. But apart from a few people, they thought he was out of his mind. When he went to the city elders, they refused to believe that there was any danger. They saw no signs of disease. And in fact, they agreed that any talk of a plague would incite the whole city to fear and panic. So fearful of what might happen and to keep this young man quiet, they arrested him and they put him into jail where he wept and wept at what he knew lay ahead for his people. And eventually, to get him out of the way, they put him to death. 
And all the while, the disease was quietly spreading, and eventually it infected everyone. The city died, and only those, uh, the only one whose blood could have saved them was now dead, and, and only the few who had believed him survived. Well, it, it brings to mind the words of John chapter 1, describing Jesus as the true light who came into the world, yet the world did not recognize him, He came to his own, his own people did not receive him. Their eyes were closed to the truth of Jesus. Jesus uh, brought to his people not only the offer of a new way of life, a life of truth and hope, uh, moral goodness and peace, but above all, Jesus came to offer reconciliation with God. But as you well know, the message of truth and reconciliation that Jesus brought was rejected. And that's why Jesus was weeping on Palm Sunday as he looked out over the city. We have neighbors in Virginia who have been involved in a property dispute that's lasted for several years now. And we've tried repeatedly to bring them together in mediation it's not, the, the, the solution's not difficult, but one of the couples has steadfastly refused to have any conversation or any interaction whatsoever. They're, they're completely closed to any reasonable reconciliation. And I can tell you, the whole neighborhood is saddened by this needless division right in our midst. And when there's a division like this, to refuse to be reconciled is a grievous thing in any situation. And to refuse reconciliation with Almighty God is surely the most grievous of all. Many people don't know or don't believe that the mission of Jesus was reconciliation. He looked out on that city so full of strife and discord. Most of the people in the city were religious in their own way, But in reality, they'd put God in these little boxes, simply imagining God to be the way they would like God to be, closing their minds to the one who could bring them back to the one true God. And Jesus offered peace, peace with God and one another, but he foresaw that it would not be many years before every stone would be pulled down into rubble, the children would die, and of course, this is what happened. The rulers of the city rejected God's son, put him on the cross to die, and a few years later, the brutal Roman army besieged and utterly destroyed the the grand city of Jerusalem, the judgment of God on Jerusalem. That's what Jesus wept over because he saw it coming. On Palm Sunday, he came over the crest of the Mount of Olives and he looked over the city and a terrible vision of all of it was to come must have flashed through his mind. And the Lord was so grief-stricken that he just couldn't go any further. He stopped and he wept. The Son of God weeping for his people. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones God's messengers. How often I have wanted to gather your children together as a hen draws her chicks beneath her wings, but you would not let me. And he wept. The Son of God wept. When do you weep? 
I ask myself that question, when do I weep? I don't mean just sentimental tears at a sweet television show, but when do you, when do you really weep? Weeping like this shows what we care most deeply about. And I don't think any moment in the entire Bible reveals the heart of God any more than this story of Jesus weeping, the Son of God weeping over the city because they would not be reconciled to God. Rather than receive the love of God, turning to Him in repentance and faith, they were going to face judgment. Now what about us? When God looks at us, when He looks out upon our cities, does He weep? When He sees our civil strife, our um, moral confusion, our rebellious confusion about truth. Throughout the rest of Holy Week, Jesus would speak over and over again about the coming judgment of God. I hope you'll read it for yourself this week, the last few chapters of each of the four Gospels. His repeated message is that there will be no escaping God's final judgment for those who would not turn back to God. Now, we all know that our age shies away from any talk of a God who could be a God of judgment. Many are uncomfortable with the idea of a God who could say no to anybody. But let me just ask you about this. Is, is the kind of God you want a God who in the end doesn't distinguish between right and wrong or good or bad? A God for whom anything goes? Uh, do we want a God who says that pridefulness and hateful division and injustice and deceitfulness and infidelity in the end are all acceptable to him, does really matter? Do you really want a God for whom truth and faithfulness and goodness have no ultimate value? That sort of God is not the God who's the father of Jesus Christ. God takes no pleasure in judgment. He longs that none should perish. He offers his love to any who would believe and repent. But judgment, Jesus warned, will come to those who hear him and turn away. And at the end, when God's final judgment does come, God's very own eyes will be filled with tears, tears of grief, and that's what we're seeing here when Jesus wept over the city. Such an intimate picture of Almighty God. There's one other time that same week when we find the Lord weeping again. It was his final night, you remember? The gospel says then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, sit here while I go and pray. And he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then he said, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and watch with me. My father, if it's possible, he prayed, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And three times he prayed this earnest prayer. And in Luke 22, we read these words. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down upon the ground, the sweat and tears of grief and dread. And friends, this is when the word Savior takes on a wholly new meaning. 
an unexpected meaning. It's not simply that Jesus is about to face the most cruel, cruel form of death and suffering. It's that he's about to face the judgment of God on our behalf. The punishment we all deserve, he takes for us in our place, and he does it willingly. Have we any idea how terrible this was for him? He was about to step into the place of judgment on behalf of all of us and absorb all the accumulated punishment that the worst and even the best of us deserve. He took the punishment that the envious Jewish leaders deserved. He took the punishment for the greed of Judas. He took the punishment for the cowardice of Pontius Pilate. Jesus said, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep, the just for the unjust. He took the full force of God's wrath for those who have willingly abducted little children and sent them into slavery those who steal from the poor to enrich themselves, and those who arrest and starve and finally incinerate men, women, and children simply because of their race. The Word of God says Christ himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I don't know if any of us can really comprehend all that this gospel message means. It's just too great for us to take in. But if we can somehow grasp that we who are completely undeserving of God's love and mercy are still loved by God and saved by the blood of his only son, then if we can get that, then something unexpected begins to change within us if we will allow God to do it. And what happens is our eyes begin to be open about God and about us and about others. The grace of God when it comes, which you've heard so much about in this church over the years, it's not only about my being forgiven, it's about us being changed as well. It may not happen to every believer, But if we let him, his gospel touches us in deep, deep places. And over time, we wake up to the great truth that everyone in every situation matters to God. And we become restless, and we simply cannot rest until we're doing more, both to tell others of the greatness of the love of God, and also to do whatever we can to help others in need. There have been some powerful moments in history when this became a great, powerful force. Let me just share one example as I close. There are certain times in history when we could imagine Jesus weeping again over cities or over nations, over parts of the world. And 300 years ago in England, England was a a cruel and coarse and uncaring society. And except for a very few, the experience of most people there was bitter, it was unjust, hopeless, ignorance and immorality and drunkenness saturated English culture in the early 1700s. And the church was for the most part cold and empty 
and unconcerned and irrelevant. Thomas Carlyle described the England of the 18th century as stomach well-fed but soul extinct. A nation without a soul. It's hard to exaggerate the callousness of English society of that day. And then something utterly unexpected happened. Historians largely agree that if the Great Awakening had not swept through England in the 1700s, England would have suffered a terrible, violent revolution, much like the one that swept through France at the end of the century. What happened? Well, it was an awakening, a spiritual awakening. A handful of university students were unaccountably drawn to God. It was about a dozen of them. And in a way that's not easy to explain, John Wesley, George Whitfield, Charles Wesley, and a few others were completely captivated by the gospel of Jesus. And they became so radically concerned for the well-being of their fellow Englishmen. In that cruel age, they began to do something in England that had not been done for a thousand years. They began to move from village to village walking, riding on horseback, preaching out in the open wherever they could, telling whoever came of the God who loves, telling of the new life of hope and purpose that Christ offers, and calling people to turn from a hopeless life of discouragement and sin to new life in Christ. And the awakening was that people listened wherever they went. From the very first, people came out by the hundreds and then by the thousands to listen. And many, many people believed. And this unexpected flame of revival began to spread. And a massive spiritual awakening swept England over the next hundred years, leading literally millions of people to new life. And as this awakening spread and continued down through three generations, the whole social and moral fabric of England began slowly to be changed. The evangelists followed up their preaching by drawing new believers into little groups, little bands of men and bands of women, thousands of them eventually, in which they learned the principles of Christian living. They learned about integrity and self-discipline and thrift and charity and moral restraint. They learned to read. They didn't know how to read. They came to understand the Word of God. And in these little groups, they began to take a genuine interest in one another's well-being and began to take care of one another in practical ways. Men and women began to care deeply about their neighbors, and they began to look at their society with new eyes, and they realized things have to change. Schools and orphanages and clinics and hospitals began to be established. And in the second generation of the revival, a whole host of God-loving reformers began devoting their lives to seeing to it that the poor and the mistreated and the ignored were protected. Laws were changed. Churches were revitalized. The illiterate were educated. Bibles were printed and distributed. Good literature was written and produced and devoured by people. The jails, the prisons were cleaned up. The factories and the mines were made safer places to work. People began to care for one another. And a spirit of caring and reconciliation seemed to sweep across the nation. 
And the England of the 19th century was so radically changed that family life, integrity, morality, the Christian faith, and a deep sense of personal duty and responsibility became the qualities that characterized Victorian England. There's so much more to this story that I wish I had time to tell you, and many of you know this. Let me just close and bring it around to our nation. No nation will ever be fully righteous. But in England of the mid-19th century, her soul had become very much alive. Now, what about us? The, the tears of Jesus were not shed just for Jerusalem or just for England of the 18th century. I believe he weeps for us today as well in Birmingham and in Washington, D.C., where I come from. And for many of us, so many in our day have either forgotten God or domesticated God according to their own little desires. But when our eyes are open to see what God did for us, taking upon himself on the cross the punishment, that God's perfect justice requires of all of us, then we can begin to truly love Christ and begin to see one another as he does. And this, with God's help, can lead to such dynamic new ways of caring for each other. And for those truly in need and for those with whom we disagree and even for our enemies, that awakening can come again. Oh God, please wake us up to you, to who you are, to your perfect goodness, to your holiness. Please wake us up to your limitless love and raise up amongst us strong, persuasive voices to tell others who you are, what you and Jesus Christ have done for us. Awaken us to how we can serve those around us in need of hope, guidance, love, and practical help. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.